O Lord, our Heavenly Father, keep your household, the church, continually in your true religion, that we who trust in the hope of your heavenly grace may always be defended by your mighty power through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. Amen. What is good is it really is good to be back uh, here at home. So I've been gone for the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, we were at our uh, Young Life Committee Leader Training Weekend over in Rockbridge. And I've attended that for several years, and I've never been able to stay for the Sunday. So this time, we were able to stay for Sunday, and that was neat. Um, and great speaker, Drew Hill, an uh, Anglican priest from in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, at Church of the Redeemer, was our speaker. And uh, he did just a fantastic job. So that was fun. Then uh, last Sunday, we, uh, not we, just me, it was me, I went to uh, Charleston to preach and fill in for Derek as uh, at, at Hope Church. So, and, and I I don't know that everybody knew where I was, and, and it's important that we understand we're part of something that's bigger than just us, and we're part of this diocese, and in our diocese, we now have three church plants here in West Virginia, here, Charleston, and Beckley. And so, turns out Derek went to the mothership, as we call it. He went to Roanoke and was preaching. And so I, I, I preached and filled in for him. So uh, it's good to be back home with y'all. And uh, I appreciate Kirk and uh, Ryan filling in for me while I was gone. And, um, and I, I still don't even know how they did. I haven't listened to their messages, but soon I will actually get them online. And I'm sure they were very both very good. Um, and, and, and they were moving. We're, we're still moving right along. They moved right through uh, Luke. And that's where we are again today. So in that very lengthy passage, uh, we're going to hit some highlights on it and hopefully discover a few things. But uh, after trying to cover, when we're trying to cover 35 verses or whatever, chances are good we're not really going to dig in too deeply and do it full justice. So uh, keep that in mind. If you would like to um, understand more, or at least read the, the other passages that are similar, this is also talked about, uh, it's the same scene discussed in Matthew 24, and it's the same scene discussed in Mark 13. So you can reference those uh, passages for further study, and I think it could be a help. So how many of you are concerned about the future? At some point, I think we're all concerned to some degree about the future. Could be simply tomorrow's Monday and we actually have to go to work. It could be that there's something coming like the next um, project or an, a test that needs to be passed and that's in the future. That, that, that could be um, so, some concern for some of us. <coughs> it could be something greater than that of like getting through this next stage of life, uh, a, a move or a job change or those kinds of things that make significant difference and impact in your life. It could be even when you're thinking of the future and, you know, am, am I anxious about the future? could be that we're thinking about leaving retirement planning. Uh, are we thinking about that? How off, far off in the distance is that? How am I doing at that? Those, the, those things are typically uh, worth being concerned about, uh, as well as, you know, even like what we're going to have for lunch. So this is being concerned about the future. There's, there's a part even about like estate planning. Like what happens when we pass? Now I don't care how young we are here, 
we don't know that tomorrow is guaranteed. So that one we could all use, at least be thinking about from time to time so that we actually have some plans in place so that things go the way we would like them to go. And lots of people will say, oh, geez, I don't want to discuss that. I don't want to think about that. And so I'm just not going to do that. Well, okay, don't do that to the people you love, okay? If you don't like it, get over it and do and do your thinking so that you have some plans in place because you don't know when these things are going to happen. And it doesn't matter whether you have lots or nothing. There's still the idea that your life will end is really true and somebody's got to help pick up the pieces or do something with you. So to discuss those, I think it's, it's helpful. We just don't know when those things will be. So there's this anxiety we all have about future to some degree. But like how has maybe national uh, tragedies, how have national tragedies affected your view of the future? Some of us, um, as 9-11 happened, we, there, was a, there was mourning, there was concern, but there was also this fear of like the fear of the future and this uncertainty. And what would this mean for us and the normal lives, lives that we did lead at the time? What does it look, for, look like for us? in the next week, in the next month, in the years to come. And indeed, our world has changed after that in many ways. Um, but perhaps our greatest fears weren't realized, but the idea that we were concerned uh, is very real. We very, we, we very much were concerned. So what, um, what we're doing in this passage, Jesus is going to talk about the future. He's going to address some questions. Jesus had just left the temple, him and his gang, the disciples that were with him. And uh, Kirk covered those four verses last week about the widow's might, that the widow gave very little compared to the rich people, but yet somehow he, she gave more because God looks at the heart and not just the amount you're giving. So the heart is significant when you're giving to the Lord. And so they're leaving the temple, and the disciples are admiring the grandeur of the temple. And this would be easy to do. And the uh, they were commenting about how grand this thing was. The the uh, foundation stones would have been as big as boxcars, like train boxcars. These, these are huge. And I think that's I think that's kind of helpful for us to have in mind as we get into this very next uh, thing about how Jesus responds, because they're they're making much of. All the, all the grandeur of the temple, and, and, and rightfully so, they, they weren't out of line. This was a grand structure. And so, um, Jesus responds to this in verse 6, and he says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, this startled the disciples. Now they're concerned, now they're really concerned about the future. And so they needed a private audience with him. And so on the side of the mountain, Mount Olive, uh, they, they, they sought a private audience with him and, and asked him uh, these questions like, when are these things going to happen? What are the signs? When will we know? And it's in this thing, that on this side of this mountain, where they're able to overlook even the temple. It's so high as, as, they're, as they're gathered here. This passage is recognized or referred to as the Olivet Discourse. So it's a, it's the conversation that happens on the Mount of Olives. But in it, Olivet Discourse, you may see references to in some of the things that you read. This is what it's talking about. 
this, Matthew 24, Mark 13. So they've asked questions, and then this passage um, is where Jesus simply answers questions about the future. He charges his followers to stand firm and not be deceived by false teachers and to be and to persevere in the midst of persecution and times of trial. So the first thing he does is discusses that he discusses the uh, uh, current times. What what is a description of the current age that we're in or they are in at that time? So this is like running from verse eight through nineteen. And I'm not going to reread that section. <clears throat> but he tells them not, not to not be deceived. In, in, in this passage, in those few verses, 8 through 19, he's telling them not to be deceived by false teachers or continued wars or catastrophes or cosmic signs into believing that the end has come. He's trying to get them to understand that these things have always been and they will continue to be and don't be led astray. He's saying that the end will not come in an instant, but it will be over a long period of time. Now, it is easy for us to think that the end is near when we experience such things. That there will be wars, verses 9 and 10, and rumors of wars all along. Uh, Will Durant said, War is one of the constants of history, and it has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Out of 3,400 years of recorded history, only 268 of those have seen no war. So wars have been and will be. This is a bit like Jesus saying that the poor will always be with you. There, there will always be poor among you. Well, there will always be war among you. So... Um, and, and this is not even considering that those that didn't make it into the recorded history, those other wars. So I would say the number is probably even less than that. There are many religious teachers, so like in verse 8, who will capitalize in times of trial. Um, they'll capitalize on people's fears for profit. And they read the signs of the times. And then they use some scripture to prove their point. And then increase our anxiety over the end of civilization as we know it. How many people do you suppose were in Germany who were believers in 1945 who thought the end was near? I'm guessing it was more than like one. They probably thought the end of the world had come. What about the believers? Uh, I assume because the... Uh, at the time of the missionary journeys and stuff, there had to be believers in, around, or in the vicinity of uh, Hiroshima when the bombs dropped. Do you suppose they thought the end is here? This is totally the end. This and this is—it's just so common. It's a very natural for us to think when we're exposed to catastrophic events, and perhaps it was even us in 9/11. We're thinking, okay, the end is near. But the reality of the way, the way that thinking goes, it is really kind of an absurd way of thinking. It's rather narcissistic. It's self-centered. And this, and this, this we run into frequently. 
Whether it be through the teachers or whether it's really through um, depravity, we could easily trace some increases in our depravity and depravity being accepted. I think it would be very easy to do. And sometimes we refer to these things and numbers in uh, Europe as well as here, the numbers in churches, are conti- those continue to dwindle. And so we say, well, Christianity is dying and you see these things. People are, in, in the end times, people will look for things that are just tickling their ears. The Bible says this. And we'd say, okay, we're seeing this and therefore we're near the end times. I will say we've been in the end times. Some, a fellow, a friend of mine one time told me, we believe we're in the end times. And I'm like, well, okay, we've been in the end times since the cross. Because like he's coming back and we don't know when. And so we're in these last days and they've been going on for a while. So it becomes rather self-centered to say in the midst of our tragedy that the end of the world must be happening. Or we're seeing the fulfillment of these things. Therefore, we know the end is near. I think the point of this Jesus' message at this in this beginning part is to say these things happen, and they're going to continue to happen. Even natural catastrophes, verse 11 speaks of natural catastrophes. They can be viewed in much the same way. So, But between the time of Christ's death and 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was destroyed, and they trampled underfoot, which is what we are had had read about um, there was there was an earthquake in Laodicea there was a famine in Rome and Mount Vesuvius erupted and flooded the city of Pompeii with molten lava so these natural catastrophes were already happening before this fulfillment of Jerusalem being destroyed and so they're going to continue to happen and the fact that they continue to happen and the fact that they're happening, this is really related to Genesis 3. We were like, well, how does this happen? Well, there's this curse that's curses was on us as mankind. The curse is on all of creation. And therefore, it's not a perfect world in which we live. And what we consider as natural, there's still natural disasters, but it's a result of Genesis 3. It's a result of sin entering the world. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying, in saying that, I, I think that's true with like our sickness, with the fact that, you know, good people get cancer and die. Uh, th- this is all related to Genesis 3 and sin entering the world. The person that gets cancer didn't get cancer because they were a sinner. It's just part of the fallen world in which we live. The fact that we get a tornado comes through and wipes us out and we're all gone doesn't mean we were a bunch of sinners. That, that means that the sin had entered the world and the whole thing is out of kilter. That's what Genesis 3 is about. It was a cosmic change. It was, the whole world is, has changed in Genesis 3 from the fall of man. So we, I, I, I didn't, I didn't think that through as I was making my notes and I needed to make that clarification that I don't want a one for one correlation. Uh, it's kind of like the blind man thing where it, who, was it him or his parents who sinned? It's a fact that there is sin entered the world and we're not, and none of us are getting out of here alive. So there's decay and corruption among us, and we're all going to participate in it. So that's just that's just the way this is, and it's a result of sin, but it's not necessarily a direct correlation to our sin. All right, moving forward, we can also read signs of like cosmic signs, signs from heaven, also verse eleven, and then we can come up with new meanings. 
and significant meanings for blood moons or many other signs that the time of Christ's return is is near. And of course, there are people who will, in every age, there are people who are proclaiming they know when Christ will return. Well, you see these signs whip the people's emotions up, thinking that life as we know it is going to change, and and, and stir them up, and perhaps you can make a profit out of that. But one thing we know is they don't know when the world's going to end. I don't care what signs they're seeing, they still don't know. March 26, 1997, it was Holy Week. It was the vernal equinox, and it was a partial lunar, lunar eclipse. And then the Hale-Bopp comet was coming through the sky. All of these things, these cosmic kind of events and cosmic signs, signs of the times, were interpreted so much so that this became the apocalypse for 39 members of Heaven's Gate's cult. They thought that if they would drink their deadly poison and rid themselves of their bodies, their spirits could hitch a ride on the, um, the, the spaceship that was going to follow the comet. Each, as they died, it had like $5 and, I don't know what it was, I don't remember, $5 and a quarter or something in their hand. Because they needed that for the interterrestrial toll. Now, I, I, and now to say that, and this is a grave thing. You see, 39 people bought into this, so much so that they're shedding their bodies so that their spirits would be free, and somehow in their hands still they held on to physical money for this toll. A false teacher had arisen and proclaimed these things, interpreted the signs around, because he was spiritual and he could see these things, and these people bought into it. We need to know the truth. We need to be able to stand firm. We need to be able to interpret the signs of the times. We need to be able to stand firm in God's word and hear what he has to say. In doing so, he's saying that some of these particular people, particularly, would be brought before authorities and be persecuted. They will, at least some of these people, will become martyrs for the cause of Christ. That term martyr, we uh, just covered this in our history book we're reading, that the term martyr means witness. That's where it comes from. And so as somebody is brought before these courts and being persecuted, both, and this, and this was saying it was happening in the synagogues and it was going to happen before government authorities. So it's going to be both in religious situations as well as secular situations. The people would be persecuted. And in that, the people will have opportunity to give witness to Christ. And so, um, Tertullian, this is later, this is like in the 300s, I'm pretty sure, 200s, 300s, Tertullian wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So as they were being persecuted, the faith spread. The faith spread through persecution. And that's this is the little quip that Tertullian wrote, as he's looking back and seeing what had happened, he's seeing how the church grew, but it grew because it was being persecuted. So his his line is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as you're reading, you'll see references to that from time to time. All these things have been going on forever, and they will increase or intensify near the end. And so one of, one of the 
in order to be able to read the signs right, we have to understand that, okay, these things have been going on. If they're happening in our, to us in our community, that doesn't mean the end must be near because it's happening here. These things have been happening all along, and we have to be able to understand and interpret the times. Don't be fooled, because this period of the end will be a prolonged period. So the next thing we come to is this destruction of the temple. And that's in verse, uh, begins in verse 20. And he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. And so on it goes. And then it gets down to 24, and it says, They will fall by the, the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, those people who he's talking to will recognize when the end is near for that city, for Jerusalem. That these, he's, he's prophetically speaking that at one point you're going to see the city surrounded by armies. And, um, and it's at that time you're going to note this time of desolation has come. And this time of desolation is, is like the, this is not just a, uh, a destruction of the temple or a destruction of the city, but there's a desolation in the temple because of a desecration that's happening. And and evidently, this was foretold by Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. He said that this was going to happen. And then evidently prior to this, about 150 years, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes conquered the city and then set up a statue of Zeus on the altar in the temple. And therefore, he was desecrating the temple then. But there was still one to come. And when you see armies around the city, get out. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about the people leaving the city. And he said it was as if swimmers were deserting a sinking ship. So they were leaving in droves. So we, we, we both, we have the, the uh, benefit of hindsight and history, and these are facts. Jesus, was telling these people what's to come, and then it came to pass. And in 70 A.D., the city was taken. There's going to be... The, the, his, his warning to them is there is no time. There's no time to be turning back. There's no time to get your coat. It's time to get out when you see this city surrounded. And the temple, in this taking of the city, the temple was originally ordered to be left alone, left standing, because it was such a grand structure. But evidently, one of the soldiers started a fire inside the temple, and so with that the order was changed to go ahead and demolish the temple. And so the temple had a lot of uh, silver and gold um, clad stones. And so the soldiers would take one stone off the other, off the other, in order to strip and, and, and salvage this gold and all these jewels that were on the stones. And so ultimately here in 70 AD, as the city was destroyed, um, and, and, and when, when that order changed, it was this, yes, take the, you know, destroy the temple, but destroy everything in the city. And not one stone was left on the other. And I find that very interesting. That, of course, you know, I'm not surprised that Jesus knew, but I mean, to the literal point, it wasn't like that the, the temple was just, uh, destroyed. But it was to the point that 
it was disassembled one, one stone after the next because of the greed that's in man to get to this gold that was on it. So Jesus' words were absolutely fulfilled. So the historians wrote that on the rooftops as in the city that they were lined with women with young children and in the alleys there were bodies of the elderly. And then, and this is a time of famine and people would be walking along in the marketplace and just kill over. But there was no like wailing and whining and crying because the famine had like quenched their emotions to the point that they, they just couldn't even, they couldn't do that. They were, everybody in the city is so, um, starved and ripped for, from their emotions that you, you, you couldn't even express your emotions. And, and the devastation was so great. It was huge. They couldn't bury all the bodies. They just threw them over the city walls. They, they didn't, they didn't know what else to do with them. The time of the Gentiles began with the death of Christ on the cross. And that's when that, as, as we talk about at, at, at Easter, when Jesus uh, was crucified on the cross and the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom all the way into making access to the Holy of Holies so that anybody could come. So that this is the time of the Gentiles. So there were, a priest was no longer needed. Jesus is the high priest. And they could enter in this way. But this trampling of the city by the Gentiles cemented the time of the Gentiles. And that time of the Gentiles will continue until Christ comes again. Romans 11.25 says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this is, this is also a recognized thing from Paul sometime later, looking back, writing about this. The time of the Gentiles uh, is going to end when Christ returns. And so he gets to that point and then he shifts to the return of Christ. And he's, and he's going to talk about the Lord's return, 25 through 28. He says, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So, this passage appears to be partial verses from the Old Testament or Old Testament concepts of apocalyptic language all kind of mushed together to make this point of how drastic things will change when it's the end. So there's the, there are wars and rumors of wars and, and, uh, and they're talking about the beast kind of thing, but then at the end, things will get... This, this is just the beginning and things will get worse. This, prop, this part where things get worse is what he's talking about here. Kent Hughes says... This is apocalyptic language, or end-time language, for violent change in the nature, natural order and in human life. The result will be widespread despair and apprehension. So there's going to be this great chaos throughout the world. This is not a localized thing. There's going to be great chaos throughout the world, and in the midst of this chaos, the Lord will appear 
on a cloud. This is the Son of Man that the Ancient of Days has sent, as promised, through the prophet Daniel. Both the the, the title of Son of Man and Ancient of Days, these are really critical kind of terms, but we're not studying Daniel, and I just didn't have time to do this. We really need to develop that. Just keep those in mind. We'll see those again and again and again. Those in the, the point here is those in the world at this time, that generation, when the Lord is coming back and these signs are increasing and things are changing, they will recognize the signs of the times. And he goes into this fig tree thing. And it's, it's in this that he, he's recognizing, saying you will recognize the signs of the time. Just like we recognize when the fig tree is going to bloom, we know summer's near. As, as we can tell when seasons are changing, we will be able to tell without a doubt that the end is near, or whatever the generation is at that time. And, there, and I think what he's saying is there will be no mistake about that. Um, as these things are happening, no one knows this time, no one knows the hour, and so we've got to hold fast. And we don't fall for the false prophets telling us that, it, oh, it's going to be on, uh, you know, whatever. This, this particular Thursday, the world is going to end. We can't buy into that because we know that the word of the Lord is true. Therefore, this person who's deciphered all these signs of the time can't be accurate about this. And it, if he said, if he were, it would just happen to be, you know, it's, it's, it's this happenstance. By the same token, we need to be prepared. And, and I think there's this thing where we are driven by fear and this fear of the future. Then if we say, oh, the end is near. So maybe, you know, I really ought to tell my friend about Jesus. Really ought to bring my, my, my friend or my cousin or my sister or my brother to church. Maybe they, I need to help them get right for, I need to get my life right with the Lord. The point is, you need to be right with the Lord now. As we've said, you don't know when your end is going to come. The idea that we're going to prepare for the end, meaning Jesus' return by getting serious about our faith, is a little ridiculous. If you really are a person of faith, if you really have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, if he has, if you have sensed, if you understand that he has plucked you out of that miry clay, that he has pulled you out of the darkness and set you into the light, really? Are you that selective of when you're going to worship him? Oh, I'll just wait till the end is near, and then I'll get serious about this. I gotta think then maybe you gotta re, you gotta revisit whether I'm a person of faith at all. And I'll just go there yet again. It bothers me tremendously when in our area, and and this may be true everywhere. I'm not not everywhere. I don't live everywhere. Frankly, I don't really care about everywhere. I care about here. And what I see frequently, and these are people who I know and love, they're fine being isolated Christians. And I'm going to throw those quotes up because I'm not sure that they are. Because the thing of, if, if you've been redeemed like I just talked about, then there's got to be something in you that says, I want to be among God's people. If you like Jesus, you probably ought to like the things he liked. He seemed to like his church. He gave himself for her. So therefore, I think, okay, my friend, if you're not in church, you need to be in church. It doesn't have to be our church. It has to be a church. And you, 
and, and there are a bunch of sinners in church, and they're hypocrites, and they're this. I got all kind, I got a zillion reasons not to go to church. Yeah, okay. I could help out to a bunch of them. But if you recognize the gospel for what it is, and recognize who you are for what you are, recognizing God for who He is, what you recognize is that you are a sinner. And then you need to make the conscious decision to commit yourself to a group of sinners who are in the process of being saved. This is how the Lord, this is the Lord's design. This is the Lord's work. He is expecting to sanctify us, change us, clean us up, make us more into the image of Jesus because He puts us together in a group and we grow from one another and learn from one another. When we don't do that, I think we rob Him of His glory and I'm not sure that we have really been redeemed. I just have to ask the question. I don't know. I think we need to have a fervent love for him out of gratitude for what he's done for us. You ever have anybody ask you for something? And some people you hesitate because you're like, dude, I don't, you're thinking, I'm taking, you're taking advantage of me. I don't know who you are. Yet the people who have poured into your life, like, I, I don't know, my mother, if my mother ever asked me for anything, well, I'd, I'd come through hell and high water to deliver whatever my mother wanted. She never asked me for anything. But she loved me first. She loved me first. I didn't have to love her to get her attention. She loved me first, and I would do anything to give back to her and express my gratitude for to her, just for who she is. Not, not even what she's done for me, just for who she is. This is the way it is. it ought to be with Jesus. If we recognize what he's done for us, we ought to be wanting to give back. So, we ought to be wanting to live among the people. Until this time when the Lord does come, Jesus gives this command, which is universal. It was to these people here in the beginning. It's to the people in the middle. It's to us today. Verse 34, he says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he's saying to be vigilant. Don't be lazy. He's saying what I just said. He's saying you, you need to be active in your faith. You don't wait until the end so that you're taken by surprise. I will just, I'll lighten the it comes to mind, and it's an example, and uh, just to lighten the uh, mood a little. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. So we were invited, uh, the men were invited to participate with the Journey Church down at uh, Parchment Valley for a night, men's night of prayer. And uh, the prayer began at, at 7 o'clock in the evening, and it went till 10. And this was on a Friday night. And Friday morning we had our uh, reading group, and Thursday we had our reading group, and probably both nights I was up late for whatever reason prior to. So then we get there, and we're praying. And we had it broken down in 10-minute sections, and we were to pray. Ten minutes is a long time when you're taking me that time of night. <clears throat> I had coffee with me. I was drinking coffee at the time. But as we're sitting there praying, I'm about ready to fall out of my chair, and I, I almost fell out of my chair three times. And I was like, I'm just going to move back here and lay down and pray. So I laid down and prayed, and, I, and, and then 
I was like, this is dangerous. I'm going to fall asleep. So then I rolled on my side, which is worse because that's just, it's lights out. And so I, I'm, I'm, you know, deep in prayer. And then Kirk comes along and kicks my boot. He wakes me up. So I get up and I said, Kirk, was it making any noise? He said, maybe a little. Which means the whole room could probably hear. I may have been shaking the rafters. And I, and I thought of Jesus saying, couldn't you just stay awake with me one hour? I was like, no, Jesus, I couldn't. I had to sleep. But he's saying be diligent. Be, be, be diligent in your faith. Be vigilant. Be diligent. Pursue your faith. Stay awake. Be praying. Be in his word. Um, we are to hold fast and persevere. How many people do you know who have claimed to be in the faith and maybe even pursued faith for some time and then they fall away from the faith? They just, they just go away. Those are sad, those are sad situations. He's saying, you stand firm because it's not going to be easy. In the midst of these trials and tribulations, you need to stand firm and recognize that the Lord Almighty is in control of all things, and for all things, He will work for His ultimate good. And if you're a part of that that He's working in, it will be also for your good. It may not be good in our minds or in our book. It may be requiring us to give up. It may require us to give up even our life. So we need to feast on His Word and pray so that we are not swept away by these things church simply hold fast and stand firm and cling to Christ persevere with him as he perseveres with you in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen let us pray